You may be wondering, what in the world does that mean, that term? Let me, uh, before we even look at capillary, let me just give you a brief uh, meaning or definition of that word hypostatic. It literally means uh, to exist or stand by. To exist or stand by. The, the uh, hypo part comes from a Greek word, hypo, which means by. And then the static part is from uh, status, which means, to, or stasis means, means to exist or to stand. And so hypostatic literally means to exist or stand by. And what it's going to be talking about is two complete natures that exist or stand by each other in the person of the incarnated Christ. We looked at tremendous evidence that he has a complete uh, divine nature, absolute deity, with all the attributes of deity. But when he became incarnated in human flesh, he took to himself not only a human body, but a complete human nature with all the attributes of, of man. And so now he has two complete natures, a divine one, a human one, existing or standing by each other within this one person that we worship as Jesus Christ. But that in, in my, look at Kepler A under Roman numeral 7, the meaning of the term hypostatic union as applied to Christ. We point out here that the term hypostasis refers to the true essence of something. The true essence of something. As applied to Christ, it's dealing with the following issue. What is the real essence of Jesus Christ? What is the real essence of Jesus Christ while he is incarnated in human flesh? What is the real essence of him as he's incarnated in human flesh? And we point out it's, it has been seen already that he is both deity and humanity. He is both deity and humanity in essence. And again, we explain that as follows. The incarnated Jesus Christ has a complete divine nature. A complete divine nature. And a complete human nature. Inseparably united. Inseparably united in one person. A complete human nature. A complete divine nature. Inseparably united in one person. Thus, Jesus Christ is a, and I'm going to give you a technical term here, and I'll spell it out for you. He is a theanthropic person. We would spell that T-H-E, just like the word the, which comes from the Greek word theos, which is the, the word for God. So, T-H-E-A-N-T-A-N-T-H-R-O, so A-N-T-H-R-O. P-I-C. The anthropic part comes from our word anthropology, which means the study of man. And so because he has a complete divine nature, a complete human nature, existing side by side inside of him as one person, he is a theanthropic person, literally a God-man. He's a God-man. Completely god and completely human. He's a God-man. So the word theanthropic literally means God-man. Is what it means. We further point out this union of two complete natures in Jesus Christ. Union of two complete natures in Jesus Christ has been called the hypostatic union. And the reason it's called that is because it is the true essence. 
This hypostatic union is the true essence of the incarnated Christ. And then we point out that several passages, both from the Old and New Testaments, reveal the fact of Christ's hypostatic union. For example, Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. Unto us a child is born. That's humanity. Indeed, is not born, but humanity is. Unto us a child is born. That's his humanity. But his name is the mighty God, eternal Father. He's deity, an eternal being. There's deity. Now, that was written over 700 years before Jesus became incarnate in human flesh. It was foretelling when the Messiah comes to the world, he's going to be a God-man. A God-man. A child born, humanity, but could be called mighty God, eternal Father, an eternal divine being. Daniel 9, verse, uh, I'm sorry, Daniel 7, verse 13. We've referred to this in some of our earlier sessions. He's portrayed as... A son of man, a son of man. That's humanity. But he comes with the clouds of heaven. And we noted Psalm 104, verse 3, only deity comes on the clouds of heaven. So that's signifying deity as well. By the way, that was written, revealed to Daniel, over 500 years before Jesus was born in the world and became incarnated. So again, foretelling, the Messiah will be a theanthropic person, a God-man, absolute deity incarnated in humanity, in human flesh. John chapter 1. The Word was God. This is referring to Jesus. The Word was God. That's deity. That's deity. Verse 14 of John 1. The Word became flesh. That's a reference to humanity. Have you ever wondered... Why John calls Jesus the Word? Isn't it kind of strange uh, for us to, to think about that? Well, let me explain a little bit about the significance of that. As I'm standing up here talking to you, uh, if you're awake, you're thinking thoughts in your mind. <laughs> and, but your thoughts are totally invisible to me. That might be a good thing. <laughs> uh, your thoughts are, are totally invisible to me. I can't see your thoughts. The only way I can know what your thoughts are is if you give some outward expression to your invisible thoughts. What is the vehicle or instrument we use to give the outward expression to our invisible thoughts to other people? Words. Either written words or spoken words. Words are the outward visible expression of invisible thoughts. Now, John in John 1 calls Jesus the Word. Verse 18, he says... No man has seen God, referring to God the Father. No human being in mortal form has ever seen God the Father. But the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has, and this could be translated in different ways, explained him or revealed him is the idea. So, no man has ever seen God the Father. And so Paul, in one of his Timothy letters, says, Now unto the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, referring to God the Father, totally invisible to human beings while we're in a mortal form. But the invisible God the Father wanted mankind to know what he's like. And so he sent his Son, who is the same nature as he is in the world, became incarnated in human flesh, to reveal to mankind what God the Father is like. And so as a result, the incarnated Christ 
has the same function between the invisible God and human beings that words have between invisible thoughts and human beings. He's the outward visible expression of the invisible God to mankind. And that's why he's called the Word. The Word of God. And we'll say more about that a little bit later on. Romans chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Romans chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Paul points out in verse 3 that the Messiah is a descendant of David according to the flesh. Again, indicating he's a biological descendant of David. He's become a man, and in his humanity, he's a biological descendant of David. So there's humanity. He's a descendant of David according to the flesh. But then verse 4, he's declared to be the Son of God. We already noticed the word, the Son of God, is an inscription of absolute deity. He has identically the same divine nature as his father. So again, indicate he's a God-man. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5. Paul wrote, In the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son. Again, the Son of God. That's deity. But notice the next expression. Born of a woman. There's humanity. In other words, right when the time was right from God's perspective during human history, he sent forth his divine son, his absolute deity, to be born of a woman with humanity. So all these passages are indicating that while he's here incarnated, he is a theanthropic person. He is a God-man, fully God and fully man. Now we're talking about two natures here, and so it would be helpful, capital letter B, to consider what do we mean by the term nature? Talk about divine nature, human nature. What do we mean by nature? We point out again, Christ has two natures united in one person. A nature is a unique combination of attributes. That's what it is. When we talk about human nature, divine nature, we're talking about a unique combination of attributes that determines the kind of a being or a thing. It's a unique combination of attributes that determines the kind of a being or a thing. So, a human nature is a unique combination of attributes. Human nature is a unique combination of attributes that makes a being a human being. Now, we talk about animal nature. What's the difference between an animal and you and I are human beings? Animals have one kind of nature. As human beings, we have another kind of nature. They have a unique combination of attributes that makes them the kind of animal that they are. We have a unique combination of attributes that makes us human beings. So you're a human being instead of an elephant. Because you don't have the same nature as an elephant. You don't have the same unique combination of attributes. So that a, a human nature is a unique combination of attributes that makes a human being, or makes a being a human being. On the other side, a divine nature is a unique combination of attributes that makes a being a divine being. In light of that, since a nature determines the kind of being, the union of a human nature and a divine nature in the incarnated Christ makes him God-man kind of being. That union makes him God-man kind of being. And we point out, since he's the only one that has that combination, that means the incarnated Jesus Christ is totally unique. Nobody, anywhere, has that kind of being, is that kind of being. 
And before he was incarnated, nobody was a God-man. He became the God-man, and nobody else ever will. So, again, that incarnation changed him in that respect, and he'll always be that. From the time he became incarnated, he was become a God-man. He will always be a God-man, and nobody else will. So he's totally different and unique in contrast with everyone and everything else who exists. Kepler is C. All right? He is that God-man, but what's the relationship of his two natures? What's the relationship of his two natures in this hypostatic union? Well, first of all, number one, the two natures are united without loss of identity. They are united without loss of identity. How we explain it? Christ's human nature always remains human. And his divine nature always remains divine. There's no mixture of the attributes of one nature with the attributes of the other. They don't mix their attributes with each other. There's no mixture of the attributes of one nature with the attributes of the other. If there were such a mixture, then the human nature would no longer be a human nature because it would have some divine attributes mixed in with it. And if there were such a mixture, then the divine nature would cease being a divine nature. It would be changed if there were some attributes of humanity mixed in with the divine nature. And so as a result of that, uh, this means that a Christ, if there was a mixture of attributes of one of these nature with the other, Christ would cease being fully God on the one hand and fully man on the other hand. He'd be an altogether, again, different kind of being if there was a mixture of the attributes of one nature with the other. And so we say, therefore, that such a mixture would change the essence of the incarnated Christ. So they exist by each other, but they don't mix any of their attributes with each other. Number two. The two natures are united without either nature losing any of its attributes. They are united without any nature losing any, with either nature losing any of its attributes. Again, when Christ became incarnated, his divine nature continued to be a complete divine nature. Remember again, Paul's statement, Colossians 2.9. In him dwells all the fullness of deity in bodily form. Paul saying, even while he is here in bodily form, his divine nature continued to be a complete divine nature. It didn't lose any of its attributes whatsoever when it came into him and became united together with his human nature. So the divine nature continued to be a complete divine nature and he took to himself a complete human nature. Thus, he's fully God and fully man. If either nature were minus of any of its attributes, then Christ's essence would be different from what it is. So, they don't mix their attributes with each other, and neither nature lost any one of its attributes. If they had, he wouldn't be fully God on the one hand and fully man on the other hand at the same time. If they lost any one of their attributes. Third thing. In spite of the fact that Christ has two complete natures, he remained one person. He's not two persons. 
Nature and person are not the same thing. And so Christ did not become two persons through the incarnation. He always remains one person. And the attributes of both natures belong to his person. And here, this has some fascinating implications, as we point out here. Sometimes Christ acted in the realm of his humanity while he was here. And other times he acted in the realm of his deity. But in both instances, it was the one person who was doing the acting, whether it was in the realm of his humanity or in the realm of his deity. And here's some of the practical implications of that. Thus, at the same time, this one person could be physically tired in the realm of his humanity. And we gave some references last evening that he got tired. Nobody fell asleep in the boat as they were rowing across the Sea of Galilee one night. So that at the same time, this one person could be physically tired, namely in the realm of his humanity, and yet at the same time be omnipotent, all-powerful in the realm of his deity. In the same token, at the same time, he could be growing in wisdom. And we, we saw that from Luke chapter 2 last night. In the realm of his humanity, he was growing in wisdom, and yet at that same time, he was omniscient, knew everything in the realm of his deity, because omniscience is one of the attributes of deity. At the same time, he could be finite, limitations. We saw some of those last night. Limitations in the realm of his humanity, and yet was infinite in the realm of his deity. Same time. And then, he could be, at the same time, he could be limited to one location at a time in the realm of his humanity, and yet, at the same time, was omnipresent, everywhere present in the realm of his deity. I, I, this is a mystery. How can this be? But that's the way it was. And that's the way it still is. That's the way it still is. And so it, it's fascinating. So it's fascinating to, when you read the gospel accounts of his life and mystery, to look at it from that perspective. From that perspective. Now, Kepler D. This is very significant to note. The importance of the hypostatic union. Two reasons this was so important. Number one. It was necessary for Christ to be the perfect revealer of God to man. We said that's why John called him the Word. That he was the outward, visible expression or revelation of the invisible God to human beings. And so his hypostatic union was absolutely necessary for him to be the perfect revealer of God the Father to man. Only deity can perfectly reveal deity. And so he had to be absolute deity to perfectly reveal God the Father's absolute deity. But Christ also had to be human in order to give that revelation in a way that human beings could grasp or understand. We give references here. Again, John chapter 1, verse 18. No man seen God at any time. The only begotten Son is in the bosom of the Father. He is declared here or brought him out in the open, exhibited him to what God the Father is like. Uh, John chapter 14, verses 7 and 9, in the upper room the night before Jesus goes to the cross, he warns the apostles, I'm going to leave you soon, return to the Father. What did Philip say? Lord, show us the Father, and we'll be satisfied. What did Jesus say? Philip, have I been with you so long? And you say, show us the Father. He who has seen me has seen the Father. His point is, that's my job here. 
to so perfectly reveal to you exactly what God the Father is like. That's just as if he were here with you. Then Colossians 1.15. Paul says of Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God. Again, the outward visible expression of the invisible God. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. The Greek text says that, uh, that he is the exact representation of God's nature. Greek is very specific. He is the exact representation of God's nature. He had to be absolute deity to give an exact representation of God the Father's deity. But he also had to be human in order to exhibit that in a form or way that human beings could grasp and understand. That's one of the reasons this hypostatic union was so essential for the Lord Jesus. Second one is this. It was also necessary for the work of redemption. Also necessary for the work of redemption. The Redeemer had to be one person who was both human and divine. He had to be human in order to die. Deity doesn't die. So he had to be human in order to die, you know, as our substitute, as man's substitute. He had to be divine in order to die for all human beings. And in order that his death might have infinite value. In order to die for all human beings, in order for his death to be of infinite value. And, uh, for example, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, he says that Jesus was a ransom for all. In other words, he, he through his death as a God-man, he was able to provide full redemption for all human beings. Make it possible for all human beings. He was a ransom for all. That could not have been true if he had not been both God and man. Both God and man. There on the cross at Calvary. So there was some very practical, important reasons for this hypostatic union of his becoming a God-man. Now, Roman numeral 8, shift gears, another critical teaching about the Lord Jesus, the kenosis of Christ. Here's one of these technical terms again, the kenosis of, of Christ. And so, capital letter 8, what's the meaning of the term kenosis? We point out the term kenosis is derived from the Greek word ekenosin. Ekenosin. You say, all right, well, what's that mean? What does that mean? Well, the verb appears in Philippians 2, 7. Philippians chapter 2, verse 7. The verb ekenosin. And what it literally means is to empty. Is what it literally means, to empty. Now, some of our translations translate as he made himself of no reputation. That's really not the essence of it. It literally means that when Jesus came into the world, became incarnated in human flesh, he emptied himself of something. That's what we point out here. Philippians 2, 7, it refers to the fact when Christ became incarnated, he emptied himself of something. So obviously the issue to be cited is this. Of what did Christ empty himself when he became incarnated? What did he give up? What did he empty of from himself when he became incarnated in human flesh? Well, there have been some wrong views of this by sincere believers. Capital letter B, the wrong views of the kenosis. We point out some theologians have stated that Christ emptied himself of all his divine attributes or deity when he became incarnated. He emptied himself of all his divine attributes or deity when he became incarnated. But again, 
By contrast, notice what Paul says in Colossians 2.9. In him dwells all the fullness of deity in bodily form. So that view completely contradicts what Paul wrote in Colossians 2.9. Others claim that he emptied himself of some of his divine attributes. Not all of them, but of some of his divine attributes. Or if you want to say some of his deity. And those who advocate that said that he especially emptied himself of his omniscience, knowing everything, his omnipotence being all-powerful, and his omnipresence being everywhere present at the same time. So some say he emptied himself of all of his attributes of deity. Others say he emptied himself of the sum of these attributes of deity. But there are at least two major problems with both of those views. And the first problem, number one, is this. As we already pointed out, both views contradict Paul's statement to the effect that in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Colossians 2.9. Paul is making it very clear when he became incarnate in human flesh, he didn't give up any aspect, any attributes of his deity whatsoever. Now, all his deity was now dwelling inside of the human body. Second problem with both of those views of the kenosis is this. Since a nature is a unique contribution of attributes that determines the kind of a being, then the loss of even one attribute abolishes that nature. Since a nature is a unique combination of attributes that determines the kind of a being, then the loss of even one of those attributes abolishes that particular nature. So if Christ lost even one attribute of his divine nature in the incarnation, then his divine nature was thereby abolished. By, by that we mean it's no longer a full divine nature. It's changed the aspect of that divine nature if he, if he gave up even one attribute of his deity when he became incarnated in human flesh. And so both of these views thereby are destructive of the deity of the incarnate Christ. Now, what's the correct view then of the kenosis? What did Paul mean that Jesus emptied himself of something when he came into the world? I'm going to ask you to turn with me, please, to the critical passage, Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. This is, again, an incredible, incredible truth that Paul is communicating to us here concerning Jesus in his incarnation. Philippians chapter 2 and uh, verses 6 and 7. He just referred to Christ Jesus at the end of verse 5. He says, Who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but emptied himself and took upon him the form literally of a slave, of a slave. It was made in the likeness of men. Now, the solution to the whole Kenosis problem seems to be found in the fact, we state this here, that in the Incarnation, Christ exchanged the form of God for the form of a slave. It exchanged the form of God for the form of a slave. Verse 7, he made himself, he emptied himself and took upon him the form of a servant. Whereas verse 5, before he became incarnate, he was in the form of God. And so the solution to the problem of what did Jesus empty himself of when he came to the earth to become incarnated in flesh seems to be found in the fact of that exchange of form. 
exchanged the form of God for the form of a slave. So that what Paul is saying is, when Christ came to be incarnated, he emptied himself of the form of God. What does that mean? The form of God. Well, the word translated form, both in the expression of the form of God and the form of a slave, the word translated form refers to the outward appearance. The outward appearance. And so Paul is indicating that from eternity past until it was time for Jesus to leave heaven, to come to earth, to become incarnated, during that long span, he existed in the outward appearance of deity. In other words, in the spirit realm in heaven, when all the angels would look at him, they could see he has the outward appearance of deity, just as God the Father has the outward appearance of deity in the spirit realm. Now, Paul says at the end of verse 6, well, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. The words translated robbery here is the idea of selfishly clutching or holding on to something. Selfishly clutching or holding on to something. But he's saying that before Jesus left heaven, came down to planet earth to become a human being, he did not selfishly clutch or hold on to the outward appearances of deity with all the benefits it would have been to him personally. In the spirit realm, as angels could look at him, he's, he's equal with God the Father. And think of all the privileges he would have because he had that same outward appearance of deity as God the Father had, absolute deity. That would have given him all kinds of privileges. But he didn't look upon that outward appearance of deity with all of his privileges, something to be selfishly clutched and held on to and say, I'm not going to get down there and become a man because to do so, I've got to give up the outward appearance of my deity. And what he's saying is, he was so much more concerned for your welfare and my welfare, he was willing to empty himself of that outward appearance of deity when he left the portals of heaven to come down to planet earth. And notice what he did. He emptied himself, verse 7, and took upon him the form of a slave. The outward appearance of a slave. What an exchange. Outward appearance of absolute deity. Exalted, glorious, with tremendous privileges and position. And he voluntarily emptied himself that outward appearance of deity with all of its privileges. Come down to earth. Knowing he was going to do this, he was going to exchange the outward appearance of his deity for the outward appearance of a slave. Well, how did he do that? How did he take to himself the outward appearance of a slave? Well, let's read on. End of verse 7. He was made in the likeness of men. Being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death. What kind of death? Even the death of the cross. He humbled himself and willingly allowed himself to die a despicable form of death, crucifixion. Well, how does that relate to the outward form of a slave? Well, both ancient Greek, Roman, and Jewish literature revealed that in New Testament times, there were so many slaves executed by crucifixion. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of slaves in the Roman Empire were executed by crucifixion to the point that crucifixion was properly known to Jews, Greeks, and Romans as the slave's death. 
the slave's death. And so if you died by crucifixion, people would say, you're no different than a useless slave. And Jesus knew that's what they would say of him. He would thereby take on the outward appearance of a slave. By dying, what the world says, is the slave's death. He voluntarily emptied himself of the outward appearance of his deity, of all its glory and privileges and honor, and exchanged that for the outward appearance of a slave that knew he would, that would bring all of heaps of, of critical accusations against him, and people would say he's no better than a useless slave whatsoever. That's what he emptied himself of. And so we say here that uh, when, when Christ became incarnated, he emptied himself not of his deity, but the outward appearance of his deity. And this emptying involved two things for him while he was here in the world. Number one, he veiled his divine glory. He veiled his divine glory. Christ displayed his divine glory only once while he was here in human flesh for 30-some years. And that one time is recorded for us in Matthew 17, verses 1 through 4, where one day Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John to a mountain and was transfigured before them. We talked about this in one of our earlier sessions, where all of a sudden a brilliant light began radiating through his human flesh and clothing. And when that was going on, a cloud with a brilliant light radiating through it appeared overhead. And from that radiant cloud, the voice of God the Father is saying to Jesus, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. We noted in our earlier session that when the, when the apostles, who were good Jews, who knew the Old Testament, that light in the cloud was the same thing as the Shekinah glory of God, like the pillar of fire that led the Jews in their exodus and during their 40 years of wilderness wandering, when they compared that light overhead with the light of Jesus' flesh, that signified Jesus is absolute deity incarnated in human flesh. Because every time that Shekinah glory appeared, it always signified absolute deity. This is why John in John 1.14 says, And the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us, and we beheld his glory. He said some of us actually beheld his divine glory. We beheld his glory, full of grace and truth. And so that's the only time, according to the biblical record, while Jesus was here. He displayed his divine glory while here in human flesh. And he did that to just three men. And that was all. Nobody else had the privilege of seeing that while he was here. Even the other apostles didn't have the privilege of seeing that while he was here. And so that was when he was transfigured before Peter, James, and John. And John says, hey, I was one of them. I was there. Peter, James, and, and, and myself were the ones who saw his glory. The glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Remember what Isaiah 53, verse 2, said of him, foretelling over 700 years ahead of time, that when he would come and be here in human form, the Jews would say, he has no form or comeliness that appears to us. No. He's not, he's not uh, appearing to us as something we want. Now, if he displayed his divine glory to the whole nation, 
they would have been forced to conclude he must be deity. But he didn't do that. And so the fact he emptied himself of the outward form of his deity and only displayed it once to three men, that was three of his own believers, but not to the nation, again indicates that he veiled his divine glory while he was here. Second thing this meant for him, exchanging the outward form of deity for the outward form of a slave, he did not use his divine attributes to benefit himself. He did not use his divine attributes to benefit himself. We explain, although the incarnate Christ possessed all of his divine attributes, he did not use them to make his human life easier. He voluntarily submitted to the limitations common to humanity. He voluntarily submitted to the limitations common to humanity. Although he was omniscient, knew everything in the realm of his deity, he allowed his humanity to grow in wisdom. Again, as we've noted over and over again from Luke chapter 2, verse 52. So although he was omniscient in his humanity, he allowed his, in his deity, he allowed his humanity to grow in wisdom. Although he was omnipresent in his deity, everywhere present at the same time, he kept his humanity one place at a time and took time to walk from place to place to place. In his deity, he could have instantly transferred his body from one location to the other without having to walk. But he purposely allowed his humanity to be at one place and he took the time to walk from place to place. And although he was omnipotent, all-powerful in his deity, he allowed human beings to arrest and crucify him. Remember what he said to Pilate? If I, could, if I wanted to, I could ask for God the Father to send legions of angels right now. And you'd have no power or authority over me whatsoever. He could have done that in the realm of his deity, but he didn't. He voluntarily, he voluntarily did not use his divine attributes to benefit himself whatsoever. And allowed himself to be spit upon crown of thorns nailed down into his head, scourged on his back, nailed to a cross. He could have blown the whole Roman Empire off the map if he had wanted to with his omnipotent power and save himself from crucifixion, but he didn't. That's one of the things involved here in what Paul is saying he emptied himself when he came down to planet Earth to become incarnated in human flesh. Now, I'm going to go ahead, and we're going to deal with impeccability, and the reason I say that is because tomorrow morning, I want to deal with something altogether different than this that totally relates to Christ, and deal with the subject of the stigma of the cross, the stigma of the cross, as Paul talks about it in, in his Corinthian epistles. So we want to go on here and deal with the impeccability of Christ, and this will finish this part of our study. So right away again, Kepler A, the meaning of impeccability. What does that mean? We point out that true Christians, those who are truly born again, they trusted Christ as Savior, agree that Christ never sinned. Christ claimed that he never sinned. John 8, 46, he said to some of his enemies, which of you convicts me of sin? You can't do it. So Christ himself, John 8, 46, was claiming that he never sinned. So true believers in Jesus 
agree that he never sinned, but Christians disagree with each other concerning whether Christ was able to sin. Was he able to sin while he was here in human flesh? Some believe that since Christ was human, he was able to sin. And the term for being able to sin, say he was peccable. He was peccable. The word peccable means capable of sinning. Other Christians believe that since Christ was divine, he was not able to sin. And the term for not able to sin is impeccable. Impeccable. The doctrine of impeccability teaches that Christ was not able to sin. He was not able to sin while he was here, even as a man. Now, I'm sure as soon as we say that, all kind of questions come into your mind. Because a lot of people say, wait a minute, wait a minute, there's a lot of problems with that. And so we want to address some of the problems with that view that he was not able to sin while he was here as a God-man. First problem is this, to some bring up. The incarnate Christ was a sinless man with a sinless human nature, but so was Adam before the fall. Adam was a sinless man before the fall. He didn't have a sin nature before the fall. So if Adam was susceptible to sinning while being a sinless man, with a sinless human nature, then was not Christ, the last Adam, according to 1 Corinthians 15.45, the last Adam, was not Christ, the last Adam, also susceptible to sinning. And that is a problem. But here's a proposed solution to the problem. Christ had something that Adam did not have. He had a divine nature that he put into humanity. He had a divine nature and thus was fully God as well as fully man when he was incarnated. Because holiness, that's what we put in the blank there, because holiness is one of the basic attributes of the divine nature. It is impossible for God to sin. Scriptures declare that. Clearly, it is impossible for God to sin. And so because uh, Jesus uh, had a divine nature, because he had a divine nature, and since it's impossible for God to sin because of his holiness, we say then that because Christ had a complete divine nature as well as a complete human nature, and because deity is far more powerful than humanity, certainly God's deity overruled any susceptibility to sin that may have been in the human nature. Obviously, divine nature is it's omnipotent. Human nature is not. And so, since because he had absolute deity, and deity is far more powerful than humanity, certainly Christ's deity overruled any susceptibilities of sin that may have been in his human nature. Christ's deity made it impossible for Christ to sin as a person. Because it's impossible for God to sin. Thus, as a person... Christ was not susceptible to sinning. All right? But that poses another problem. Number two. If the divine nature overruled his human nature, then were not the attributes of the human nature violated? And did this not cause Christ to cease being human? Think of that again. That if the divine nature of Christ overruled his human nature, then were not the attributes of the human nature violated? 
And did this not cause Christ to cease being human? Well, there's a proposed solution to that problem. Did Adam have a complete human nature before the fall? Yes. He was a man, a complete human being with all the attributes of humanity. But did he have a sin nature before the fall? No. So here was a complete human nature with all the attributes of humanity before the fall. And the sin nature was not an attribute of a complete human nature. Adam got a human nature as a result of his decision to rebel against God. And that human nature was a totally foreign element. It was originally was not there to be a complete human nature. It was a totally foreign thing introduced into Adam and his human nature. It was foreign to him. Adam had a complete human nature with all the attributes of humanity before the fall, but he didn't have a sin nature before the fall. Okay? So we say here, since Adam had a complete human nature but no sin prior to the fall, it is evident that sin is not an essential attribute. Sin is not an essential attribute of the human nature. Sin is not an essential attribute of the human nature. In other words, human nature can be fully human without sin. Adam's original human nature was was fully human, but without sin being present in his nature whatsoever. In light of that, we say, thus, if a divine nature prevents a sinless human nature from sinning, if a divine nature presents a sinless human nature from sinning, it's not violating any attribute of that human nature. You see that? If divine nature prevents a sinless human nature from sinning, it's not violating any attribute of that human nature. It is simply keeping that human nature what it has always been, a sinless human nature. Now, think about the reverse as a possibility. The reverse, however, would not be the same. Since holiness is an essential attribute of the divine nature, since holiness is an essential attribute of the divine nature, if the human nature were to overrule the divine nature, if the human nature were to overrule the divine nature and cause Christ to sin, then the divine nature would be violated and Christ would cease being totally divine. You see that? The reverse of that. So since human nature, in and of itself, the way God created it and put it in Adam and Eve, was totally sinless. There was no sin in it whatsoever. That was a complete human nature, the way God created human nature to be. Christ was born with a complete human nature, but no sin in it. Just as Adam was created with a complete human nature, but no sin in it. By the way, let me point this out. This is why the virgin birth of Jesus Christ was absolutely essential. It would appear that the sin nature, generation after generation, is passed down by the male, not by the female. Sorry, guys. But if, if your kid starts acting up, becomes ornery and hard to control, just take a look in the mirror. Just a chip off the old block. God appointed the man to be the head. Who sinned first, Adam or Eve? Who ate the forbidden fruit first, Adam or Eve? Eve did. The woman sinned first, but the race didn't fall when the woman sinned. 
It's when the man, as the head of the race, sinned that the whole race fell. Romans 5. Wherefore, as by one man, sin entered the world. It entered through Adam, even though Eve sinned first. Wherefore, as by one man, sin entered the world, and death by sin. And so all uh, have sinned. All have sinned. So that all this implies the sin nature in the whole process of procreation is passed down through the father, not through the mother. Now, the mother has a sin nature, but apparently she doesn't pass it on to the child. The father does, as the head. And this is why the virgin birth of Jesus Christ was absolutely essential. So that he could have a complete human nature with all the attributes of the, of the original human nature that God gave to Adam, before the fall, but without a sin nature being in there whatsoever. So, we say here again that uh, if, since holiness is an essential attribute of the divine nature, if the human nature were to overrule his divine nature and cause Christ to sin, then the divine nature would be violated and Christ would cease being divine. Now, but there's another problem, number three, that many people bring up to the fact he was impeccable was not able to sin. If Christ was not able to sin, then are not the scriptures wrong to say that Christ was tempted by Satan? He was tempted by Satan. Mark chapter 1, verse 13. And that Christ was tempted in all things as we are. Hebrews 4, 15. I mean, the scriptures say that. Well, if, if that's the case, if he was not able to sin, why do the scriptures say that? That he was tempted. He was tempted to sin by Satan. He was tempted at all points like as we are. By Hebrews 4.15. Here's a proposed solution to the problem. Temptation is not the same as susceptibility to sin. Temptation is not the same as susceptibility to sin. Temptation is the invitation to sin. When Satan tempted Jesus, he was inviting him. Do this, do this, do this. Contrary to what the scriptures say, what God says. Temptation is the invitation to sin. Susceptibility is the capability. Susceptibility is the capability of responding to the invitation to sin. So temptation is the invitation to sin, but susceptibility is the capability of responding to the invitation to sin. So Christ was truly tempted by that. He was invited to sin by Satan and through other means. So that he was truly tempted to bite his sin both by Satan and circumstances, but as a person he was not capable of responding to the invitation to sin. Christ could be tempted in the realm of his humanity, invited to sin in the realm of his humanity. He could be tempted to sin, in other words, invited to sin in the realm of his humanity, but he could not be tempted to sin in the realm of his deity, in the realm of his deity. For the Bible states, James 1.13, God cannot be tempted by evil. And he's God in human flesh. James 1.13 clearly states that. God cannot be tempted by evil. So his deity was impeccable. Incapable of being invited to sin and incapable of accepting the invitation. His deity was impeccable. Incapable of being invited to sin, incapable of accepting invitation. 
Thus, as a theanthropic person or God-man, Christ was temptable in the realm of his humanity, but not capable of sinning. The temptability of his humanity was overruled by the impeccability of his deity. It should be noted that Christ did not have a sin nature inside of him. He did not have a sin nature inside of him, prompting him to respond to the temptations. And uh, Hebrews 4.15 implies that. That he was attempted in all ways that we are, yet without sin. Notice the word sin there is singular, not plural. I'll talk about his actual sin, talk about his sin nature. He was solicited, invited to sin. But he didn't have a sin nature, you know, that would try to get him to pursue that temptation into an act of sin. So Hebrews 4.15, he was tempted in all ways like as we are, yet without sin, singular, a sin nature. And uh, look if you would, please, at Matthew chapter 4 and verse 1, because there's some interesting language here about being tempted by Satan. Matthew chapter 4 and verse 1. Again, Matthew chapter 4 and verse 1. Then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness for what purpose? To be tempted by the devil. The Spirit of God, after Jesus was baptized, began his public ministry, the Holy Spirit led him into the wilderness for a purpose. To be tempted by Satan. The implication is God wanted Jesus to be tempted by Satan. He purposely had the Spirit of God lead Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. Look at Mark chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. Mark chapter 1. Verses 12 and 13. This is even stronger language. Immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. Drove Jesus into the wilderness. And, what, and he was there in the wilderness 40 days, tempted of Satan, was with the wild beasts and the angels ministered to him. Not only was he led, he was driven by the Spirit of the wilderness. It says God wanted him out there. God wanted him to be tempted by Satan. Why? To demonstrate, here is the absolute sinless one. No sin in him whatsoever. And even though he goes without food for 40 days and 40 nights extremely hungry, Satan, tempting him to, knowing he was divine, could command stones to be turned into bread to satisfy his hunger, it didn't work. God wanted this confrontation to go on between absolute deity on the one hand, now in human flesh, and the epitome of evil on the other hand. Satan against Christ. To demonstrate to the world, he is the sinless Lamb of God who can take away the sin of the world. No matter what Satan throws at him, tempting him, soliciting him, do this, do this, do this, contrary to God, he would not yield. He would not yield. That's why God wanted him to be tempted. And so we, we say here that this indicates that God wanted Christ to be tempted by Satan 
This was God's way of demonstrating the impeccability of his son incarnated in human flesh. Now, just to wrap this up, Kepler received proof of Christ's impeccability. Number one, his immutability requires it. Hebrews 13, verse 8, indicates that Christ is immutable. That means unchangeable, unchangeable. So since Christ is immutable, all the attributes of deity that he had before his incarnation, he continued to have in his incarnation. One attribute of deity is holiness, which makes it impossible for God to sin. If it was, impo- if it was impossible for Christ to sin because of his incarnation, then his immutability requires that it be just as impossible for him to sin in his incarnation. If it was impossible for him to sin before his incarnation, then his immutability, one of the attributes, again, of a deity, his immutability required that it, that it be just as impossible for him to sin in his incarnation. If he could have sinned after incarnation, he, wasn't, he lost immutability, but you don't change. Number two, his omnipotence requires the belief he was not able to sin. He was impeccable. Since Christ's divine nature was both holy and omnipotent, certainly it would use its omnipotence to prevent Christ from sinning. Since his human nature was not omnipotent, it could never overrule the omnipotence of his divine nature. Thus Christ could not sin because he had an infinitely powerful divine nature that hated sin. That hated sin. And number three, the sovereignty of God requires that he be impossible to sin, to be impeccable. Whatever God sovereignly decrees is certain to happen. I'll make that very clear. In eternity past, God sovereignly decreed a plan for the universe. And the fulfillment of that plan was dependent upon the incarnate Christ not sinning. The fulfillment of the plan that God determined in eternity past for the universe was dependent upon the incarnate Christ not sinning. If there had been any possibility that Christ could have sinned, then the fulfillment of God's plan would have been uncertain. Uncertain. The very fact that God's sovereign decrees are certain to be fulfilled required the impossibility of Christ sinning. And we gave you a reference here And uh, I'm going to give you another one as well, but Isaiah 14, verses 26 and 27 is significant on this. Another reference we don't have printed there is Isaiah 46, verses 9 through 11, where God says that what he purposes, he fulfills. No doubt about it. No ifs, ands, and buts about it. Whatever God purposes, he fulfills. That's his sovereignty as the ruler and creator of the universe. And so the sovereignty of God required Christ be totally sinless, not even capable of sin. If he could have been capable of sin, that would have jeopardized the fulfillment of what God decreed and determined to happen as he works out his plan and purpose for history, for mankind, and for you and me as individual human beings. Now, I know I've dumped a lot of heavy stuff on you in these sessions together, and uh, hopefully it's stretched your brains a little bit by maybe introducing some concepts to you that you haven't really looked at before or heard before. 
But one of the reasons we wanted to, to give this to you in printed form is so that you could take it home with you and have time to sit down and think through, look up passages and digest, hopefully, uh, what we have dumped upon you. But what I hope through all this is that you'll have a whole new appreciation of who Jesus Christ is, who he is, and what he's done for you and me. Voluntarily, emptying himself of the outward appearance of his deity, for example, and exchanging it voluntarily for the outward appearance of a slave by dying what the world called the slave's death. And Lord willing, tomorrow morning in the worship hour, we're going to look more significance of that crucifixion. There's some phenomenal historical background material that sheds light on what was the significance of crucifixion in Bible times. It just opens up one passage after another after another in the Word of God with incredible meaning. And that's what we want to uh, present to you tomorrow and see how the cross of Jesus Christ is absolutely crucial. You don't dare eliminate this crossword. And this historical background makes that very, very, very clear. And so anybody who says you can be saved apart from believing he died on a cross for the sins of the world is totally out of line with what the Word of God is indicating. And so we want to share that historical background material with you tomorrow and take some of the passages that have this great significance so that I hope we can set this like concrete can't be removed from us. His death on the cross was absolutely necessary. Otherwise, nobody could be saved apart from that. And they can't be saved apart from hearing that and believing it, in spite of how much it may run against their grain to believe in a crucified Savior. So, Lord willing, these are the things we'll look at tomorrow, but I hope you'll come with a whole new appreciation tomorrow with who Jesus is and what he's done for you and what he's done for me. Father, we pray that you'll take these awesome, overwhelming truths we've been examining these days about your Son. Lord, some of this may be very new to dear folks that are here. And even us who have been in the faith for a long time, we're still seeing more and more insight into who he is and what he's done as we study your word. Give us such an overwhelming understanding of who he is that that can have a life-changing impact upon our hearts and lives that we can never lose. And will take with us to our grave or to the rapture and throughout eternity and see all the more why he is to be worshipped together with you as part of the true and the living God. Do this, we pray, in Jesus' blessed name. Amen.